praise forever. Praise forever. God, we will praise you forever because you are the King of kings. Lord, that the King who stooped down from his throne to come down and to be born into this world, in this world where we have rebelled against you, where we've turned our backs away from you, Lord, that you would send your son, the king, down and that he would willingly become a servant. Lord, would that just lead us to worship today? Would it lead us to want to pour out our heart and pour out our lives to the, to the forever praise of King Jesus? We love you, God. We worship you. And we are so excited to hear from you today. God, we, we come in here with all sorts of weird, selfish ideas. And what we need more than anything this morning is for you to meet us and to show us your love and show us your way, which is the true and the living way. Lord, show us Jesus this morning. Let us see him and be transformed by him together. And it's in his precious holy name that we worship. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Philippians chapter 2. To Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be picking up right where we left off the last previous three weeks. This is Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to finish the chapter today. Philippians 2, uh, starting in verse 17, and we're going to read down through verse 30. This is God's word to us today. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word to God's people today. Uh, through Advent, we've been looking at the, the four values that we have as a church. Uh, we looked at relationship, we looked at humility, we looked at truth, and then today we're going to be looking at leadership. Uh, this whole passage is about leadership. Spiritual leadership, spiritual leadership is imitating Jesus so that we influence others to imitate Jesus. Spiritual leadership is imitating Jesus so that we influence others to imitate Jesus. Someone has said that uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. In other words, when we copy somebody else, when we copy what someone else is doing, we actually show that we admire that person. Uh, when I was a little boy, our family took a trip to Atlanta to go to a Braves baseball game, and um, I actually don't really have the full memory, but I've heard my parents tell the story so many times that I pretty much understand what happened. Uh, apparently, we were sitting a thousand feet from home plate, uh, way up in the upper, upper, upper fourth deck, but there I was, crouched in my stance, with my hat on and my glove, yelling, hit it here, Chipper, hit it here, Chipper, because Chipper Jones was my favorite baseball player. And while Chipper Jones, there's no way Chipper Jones or any other player was going to hit the ball all the way up to where we were, I somehow found delight in imitating Chipper Jones. 
I somehow uh, expressed my love for him by, by acting like him, by wearing the cap and, and holding the glove. And even, even the way my body posture was as a little kid, I wanted to be like him because I admired him and I respected him. Uh, today, what we're going to see in Philippians chapter 2, what we just read in Philippians chapter 2, is three examples of three men's lives that had been shaped by the pattern of the gospel. Uh, three men who, because of their love for Jesus, because they were in awe of Jesus, they were, they were happy, they were willing to model their lives after Jesus. The pattern that had been set down in the life of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus was the pattern of the gospel. And what we're going to see this morning as we, as we look at this pattern is that in these three examples, the pattern that they set is the exact opposite of the pattern of this world. Jesus is going to meet with us this morning, and he is going to contradict what feels natural and right to us so that we can find life in him. This is what the pattern of the world teaches. These are the mantras which shape our lives. One, do what fills you up. Two, serve yourself. And three, seek the good life. And I know that Jesus is going to contradict those three things in our lives because Jesus contradicted those three things in his own life. When Jesus, this Jesus, who we've been singing about this morning, who came from heaven to earth, who humbled himself and was born into this world. When he came into the world, one, he emptied himself. Two, he became a servant. And three, he laid down his life. And so here's the deal. Here's the big picture. The pattern of this world, which teaches us to do what fills us up, to serve ourselves, and to seek the good life, that pattern actually leads to death. But the pattern of Jesus, which is to empty ourselves, to serve others, and to lay down our lives, that pattern actually leads to life. And so what we need this morning, what I need, what you need, what we need, is for Jesus to contradict us. We need to embrace complete and utter all of Jesus so that this gospel, this good news that we just sang about that saves us can also be the story that shapes us. That as we get consumed into Jesus, we'll kind of be like I was as a little kid with Chipper Jones, that we will just it will be the greatest privilege and honor of our lives to live and act like Jesus. So we're going to be shown this, this beauty, the beauty of the pattern of Jesus in three ways today. In three ways. The first way is this. We imitate our Savior by pouring out, to pour out. We imitate Jesus when we pour out, if you're taking notes. Uh, let's look back at verse 17. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing. And he's talking about his own life, and this is what he says. He says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Uh, so Paul's envisioning his life as a certain type of Old Testament sacrifice. The drink offering uh, was this extra little add-on offering where they would pour wine over, they would, they would take wine and they would dump it out on top of the altar, on top of a sacrifice. And it's kind of like Paul is envisioning his own life that way. He's envisioning his life as just being tipped over and poured out. Um, every so often at our house, a jug of milk or a jug of orange juice will kind of get stuck at the back of the fridge and uh, you know, it'll expire and I'm not a smells guy. Like, I just don't even want to do with that. So I don't even, tr like, if it's past the date, it's going out. Uh, so I, you know, take it out of the fridge and, and just kind of, you know, do one of these things and, and kind of turn my head away and, you know, it goes down the drain. 
But every time I do that, it's like as the jug gets lighter and lighter and lighter, I kind of start to feel a little guilty. You know, like once that liquid has gone down the drain, there's no getting it back. Uh, Once it has gone down the drain, like it can't serve its purpose anymore. It can't nourish our family. And Paul is looking at his life and he's saying, "I I am basically just being poured out. Like I'm just being wasted. It feels like I'm just being drained. But I'm being drained, I'm being wasted, I'm being poured out on the service of your faith. I'm dying so that you can live. And it's not an accident, and I think we can't help but realize that as Paul describes his own life, he describes it in a way that mirrors something that he had just said about Jesus back in verse 7, where he said that Jesus emptied himself. We realize uh, that, that Paul is trying to help us understand something about Jesus. The everyday experience that Jesus lived connects to the everyday experience that we live in the fact that Jesus got drained. Jesus was drained for us. Jesus was emptied for us. Jesus was poured out for us. And it's in his emptying that we are nourished. It's in his pouring out that we get charged up. Uh, Our mission here at Palmetto Shores is to make disciples who make disciples. And what that means is that we want a culture here uh, among our church of pouring out. Uh, The only way to make a disciple is to pour our lives out. And and I love this image because I think so many times uh, we can think about discipleship like it's just me maybe passing on some information or me just sharing some knowledge with someone else. But what we're seeing in Paul here this morning is that discipleship is so much more. Uh, Discipleship actually takes the shape of the gospel. This is what he says in another place about Jesus. This is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Paul says this. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Discipleship, what we're trying to cultivate in the life of our church, isn't just letting someone else borrow something from you. Discipleship is more like the gospel. It's more like you becoming poorer so that someone else can become richer. You becoming weaker so that someone else can become stronger. And this is what I mean. For real discipleship to happen, it might mean that you and I give away time that we could have spent doing something else, but instead we spend pouring in to someone. Um, It may even mean that you and I give away resources that we could have used for ourselves, but instead we invest into someone else. Uh, It may look like like that last little bit of energy that you had left on a night or on a weekend, choosing to give that away so that we can see Christ formed in one another. That pouring out is the picture of, of what we long to see in each of our lives at Palmetto Shores Church. But I want you to notice something odd about Paul's pouring out. So he's saying, hey, this is what what my life feels like. It feels like somebody just took me, tipped me over, and I'm just being drained. And yet this is what he says. I want to read these verses again, 17 and 18. Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering... Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So I think the explanation of why Paul can be poured out, why he can be drained, why he can feel like his life is being wasted, and yet, he still has joy, is found in the other aspect of a drink offering. A drink offering was offered as an act of worship. 
in Mark chapter 14. We just worked through the book of Mark uh, this year. And we met a woman whose pouring out was a total act of worship. This is how Mark recounts it in Mark 13, 3 to 6. It says, While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. So here's just a quick couple observations we learned from this woman about pouring out. About pouring out. Here's one. Pouring out would seem completely wasteful unless Jesus is God. What we're asking from one another here in this mission of our church is to do something that if Jesus isn't God is actually a total waste of your life. But if he is God, then it's the only thing that makes sense. And here's the other thing we see from this woman about pouring out. That real pouring out doesn't ultimately end in loss if it is done as an act of worship. Um, I don't really know anything about cars. There's a really good chance that after the service, someone's going to come up to me and correct me on something I'm about to say. So bear with me, okay? Uh, But there's something about my car that helps me understand how this works. Um, Why is it that if my car sits in the driveway with the light on for eight hours, it dies? But if I go drive my car for eight hours, it doesn't die. Like, doesn't it take more energy to drive your car for eight hours than for your car to sit in the driveway with the battery on for eight hours? Well, the reason that my car doesn't die when I'm driving it is because it has an alternator. That as the energy goes out, there is energy that is brought back in. As the the engine runs, it actually produces new energy. And what we're seeing from Paul here today is that when we are pouring out as an act of worship, what we receive back is the joy of imitating Jesus. And it's like this alternator effect. When we're just pouring out and it's maybe out of guilt, when we're pouring out and it's just trying to perform or maybe trying to get recognition from others, like that just depletes us. You just, you just, you pour out, you pour out, and then you just get mad, you just get frustrated that people aren't looking at you and patting you on the back. But when you're pouring out is an act of worship, there is this alternator effect where you actually get back the joy of being like your Savior. And it changes the pouring out experience. So Paul initially connects his own life to Jesus. And now he's going to move to another example to show us the beauty of the pattern of the life of Jesus in the person of Timothy. And so the second way we imitate our Savior is to build up. So first pour out, second build up. We'll read verses 19 to 24. says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I that shortly I myself will come also. So uh, if you've been tracking with us the last few weeks, uh, you might realize that what, what Paul's actually talking about here in the life of Timothy is the exact same stuff that he's been talk, challenging the church to embody in, in their life together. And it's almost like Paul's sitting, sitting there thinking, okay, 
I've just challenged the church. I've just told them like how they should reflect Jesus, how they should reflect the gospel. Who is somebody that I know that they also know who actually is doing what I'm calling them to do? And the person that comes to his mind is Timothy. When uh, Paul says here that Timothy at, served as, it says, as a son with a father, he has served with me. He is showing us how the story of Jesus had shaped and gripped the story of Timothy. Jesus Christ had also become an obedient servant son. And Jesus' obedience as a servant son led to our salvation. If we are going to be saved by Jesus, then we must be served by Jesus. And Jesus painted this picture for his disciples um, in a most striking way. This is John 13. You know, this is just the, the picture of Jesus as a servant. In John 13, 3 to 5, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose up from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Guys, this is the real Jesus, the Jesus who takes up a duty that is beneath him to love us and to save us from our selfishness and our pride. This is, in my mind, just another picture of Christmas, right? The king of the universe, the king who's sovereign over it all, stooping down to wash the feet of men. I just recently learned about the history of the nativity scene. Uh, apparently in the year 1223, uh, Francis of Assisi, who was an uh, Italian friar, uh, was the first guy to reenact the, the night of the birth of Jesus. And, you know, I guess the intention there was for him to show people just how humble the Savior had become, just how humble the sovereign king had come to, to save us uh, from our sins. But now, you know what? Like, it's just easy for us to get numb to the nativity scene. We've just seen it so many times that it's just easy to forget actually how humbling that was for Jesus. And so maybe a, a better demonstration of the humility of the servant Jesus comes when you and I lay aside our interests and actually seek the genuine welfare of others. Right, then this nativity scene that is supposed to be this reenactment of the humble service of Jesus, it's almost like Paul is looking at Timothy's life and he is seeing the humble servant Jesus in the life of Timothy. So what I want to do is just think through a few categories for a moment. What would it be like for us to imitate Jesus, the servant? Imitate Jesus, the servant king. Let's just think through a few categories. Um, first, uh, let's just talk about, your, talk about our work. Um, what if when you showed up at work um, on Monday, tomorrow, your new goal was, like your new top priority was, how can I build others up? Like, this is the, the image I had in my mind this week as I was kind of trying to think through this whole work thing. If Jesus had your job, how would his servant attitude change the way you do your work? Just one, one category. Um, how about our marriage? How would it change the attitudes and the decisions of our marriages if we woke up in the morning... And instead of thinking, man, I hope my spouse looks out for my interests today, we woke up thinking, how can I look to the interests of my spouse? What little dirty duty, what little thing like, like Jesus washing his disciples' feet, what little thing could I do that would reflect Christ to my spouse? And then a third category that I thought about uh, was the category of the church. Now, obviously, uh, here we have serving opportunities. There's lots of ways. Um, I just want to, man, I saw Ronnie here. 
He's only been coming here for a few months, and he was already serving this morning. I mean, that's just so cool. I, I just, man, I just want to honor you. Thank you for, for putting yourself in the game. That's so awesome. So we, we obviously had these ser- serving opportunities, um, but this is what I thought about. Like, here's something that, like, it's so simple. Like, your schedule might be crazy, whatever. Here's something so simple that, that we can all do to embrace the servant heart of Jesus. What if we just changed how we walked through that front door? What if our heart, as we walked through the door, was, who can I serve? Who could I build up? What if we approached the doorway of this church and we maybe prayed and said, Lord, this morning, show me a need that I could meet. Show me a person who I could build up in your love and in your power today. Man, like how cool would that be? Some of you do that, and I love it, and I see it. Thank you. Keep it up. Keep going. So, here's what I find most interesting about this section about Timothy. Uh, Back in verse 4, this was week 1 of this series. Back in verse 4, this is what Paul had encouraged the church to do. He said, Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. But then here later in verses 20 20 and 21, he says something really, really similar, but it's slightly different. This is what he says. He's talking about Timothy. He says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, knowing what verse 4 says, this is what I would anticipate. I would anticipate verse 21 to say, for they all seek their own interests, not the interest of others. Because that's what he says in verse 4. And that's what, that's what you would kind of expect. But he doesn't say that. And I don't think it's an accident. Because Paul is teaching us that there is, there is a difference between man-centered service and Jesus-centered service. Service that is, that is aimed first at humans versus service that is aimed first at Jesus. And here's what I mean. Uh, take a family, for example. Maybe mom and dad are uh, choosing to set aside their own interest so that they can look to the interest of the child, look to the interest of their, their kid. Now, we would say, okay, awesome, great job. But here's the deal. If the parent setting aside their interest for the interest of the child isn't driven and fueled and motivated by love for Jesus then that will actually be crushing that child instead of loving that child. That a child-centered family sounds loving, but it's actually in the end crushing. Um, I remember uh, the other day, this was like maybe two or three weeks ago, uh, my mom reminded me of a time in my life where I wasn't uh, living up to our family values. I wasn't, um, you know, being the best. Uh, I was a little too self-absorbed. I was a little too, too selfish, and uh, it was, it was my, after my freshman year of college, I hadn't signed up for student housing like I was supposed to, and I kind of walked in the door expecting mom and dad to fix it, I was expecting mom and dad uh, to do something for me, and I'll never forget the, the other day, I heard this for the first time, this, this came out of my mom's mouth, she said, we could have fixed the problem, or we could let the problem fix him, come on. If my parents had been loving me and had maybe paid for an apartment or tried to, try to somehow fix my scenario, they actually wouldn't have been loving me. But because my parents loved Jesus more than they love me, guess what, guys? They could make the decision that disappointed me but in the end was actually in the best interest of Jesus for me. So many times we think we're being a servant, but what we're actually being is a people pleaser. And it is when we first and foremost are serving Jesus that when we actually have to serve somebody by not doing what they want, then we can have the power 
to disappoint them because our service is first and foremost not to them, but to Jesus. So Paul is saying, as important as it is to not seek your interest and to seek the interest of others, what I'm really after is that you would not seek your own interests, and instead you would seek the interests of Jesus. And if you seek the interests of Jesus, you will seek the interests of others. That's the difference between man-centered service and gospel-centered service. So Jesus has been emptied, and in reflection, Paul was poured out. Timothy had become a servant as a reenactment of the life of Jesus, but now we're going to be introduced to one more character, one more example in the person of Epaphroditus. And so the third and final way that we imitate our Savior is to lay down, to lay down. Verses 25 to 30 say, I have thought it necessary to send you to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So here's the story. Paul's in prison. Maybe you, maybe you knew that, maybe you did it. Paul's in prison. And the church in Philippi that he had planted, they were sending him a financial gift. But guess what, guys? Uh, it wasn't the 21st century. The only way to get money from one place to another was by a human being taking the money from one place to the other. And so the person who had signed up, who had said, hey, I'll do it, I will go, was Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus had taken this financial gift from the church to Paul, who was in prison. And now Paul is saying, hey, I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending Epaphroditus back uh, so that you can see him and know that he's all right. So that's the story. That's the situation. But you can't help but notice that as we've seen this pattern, that, that, that Jesus emptied himself, Paul poured out. Jesus became a servant, Tim, Timothy became a servant. Now what are we going to see? What we're going to see is that as he tells the story of Epaphroditus, he's framing it in a way that we see in Epaphroditus the person of Jesus. That as he says, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service, we hear the echo of verse 8 about Jesus and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Epaphroditus obediently risked his life. But Jesus, our Savior, obediently offered up his life. And Epaphroditus was so gripped by the death of Jesus that it had totally consumed his life. Maybe you're here today, and I, like, I don't know. I don't know how seriously uh, you take Jesus. I don't know how seriously uh, you believe in the gospel. Maybe you think that's a little odd, or maybe, maybe even just a little radical, that someone would risk their life for Jesus, risk their life for the gospel. But see, we, we are all born conformed to the pattern of this world. And here's the, here's the big secret, surprise. We are implicit in forming that pattern. That this pattern of the world, this, the, the ruts and grooves of this world, we've contributed in creating them. The pattern of this world is more like a dirt road than it is a car wash. Let me, let me explain that. Uh, when you go to the car wash, there's this little lane, there's this little groove for your tire, and you have to make it right in the groove so that, that your car can get in the contraption to go through the car wash. 
But how did that groove get there? How did it find its way there? Somebody came out uh, with some tools. They measured it. They knew how big tires are, and they drilled it into the ground, and they kind of put this thing there so that you would you know, drive right into it. But that's not how a dirt road is formed. A dirt road is formed by hundreds and thousands of tires going over the same place again and again and again until those ruts are formed. And that is more like what the pattern of this world is. The pattern of this world exists because sin exists. The sinful patterns that cave in on our lives are only there because the sinful corruption first exists in our hearts. We are the ones who made this pattern. We are the ones who ran the same play again and again of selfishness, of self-interestedness. And the whole time it was just rebellion against God. And that's why Christmas and Christianity is an announcement of good news. This is not just like a fun, sentimental time of year, right? This is not just a self-help program. This is good news that Jesus Christ came into this world and he lived a perfect life and he died in our place and he was raised from the dead. Why? So that you and I could be brought from death to life. So that that old pattern which we were implicit in creating could be broken and that we could by faith enter into Jesus the new and the living way. And this guy, Epaphroditus, he got it. He realized that that story is the story of all stories. That that gospel, that good news, if it's true, demands his whole life. For Epaphroditus, Jesus wasn't just sort of a side garnish, right? Jesus wasn't just one slice of the pie. Jesus wasn't just one person sitting at the boardroom of the control center of his heart. Jesus had gripped his whole life. Why? Because without Jesus, he would be dead in his sins. He would be stuck in the slavery. And he would have no life and no purpose. And so if, if Jesus has set him free, if Jesus' death had meant life for him, then laying down his life for Jesus was the only thing that made sense. Laying down his life for Jesus was logical. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves this morning. In view of the good news of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, which saves sinners, which transfers rebels into God's kingdom, in view of that story, is there anything that we're still holding on to that we wouldn't be willing to lay down? Some dream, some possession, some grudge, some sin, some item on our schedule that in view of what Jesus has done for us, we wouldn't lay it down in response, in return. This is what I love about marriage. Uh, when you enter into a marriage, you're choosing to lay stuff down. And it's in the laying stuff down that you actually find the, the joy and the love. I lay down my time. I lay down my priorities. I lay down my money. I lay down any interest or opportunity at other romantic relationships. And in that mutual laying down, the beauty of marriage is, is formed. When we become a Christian, what that means 
is that we are married to Christ. Jesus laying himself down and giving his full self to us. And then in return, us laying ourselves down and giving our full selves to him. That is what it means to be a Christian. And I just want to encourage you guys this morning. If you've never laid your whole life down to Jesus, you won't regret it. This deal, this marriage, what we bring to the table and what he brings to the table, they do not compare. So let's give him everything. And here's the really cool, unintended, maybe intended, I don't know, consequence of Epaphroditus. Here's a guy who is willing to lay down his life for Jesus, who risked literally at the brink of death for the sake of the work of Jesus, Paul says. But there's this really beautiful consequence. Uh, There's two parts of this last section, and they kind of seem like they might not have anything to do with each other, but I think they're extremely related. Here's the two sections of this last paragraph that really stand out to me. On the one hand, Epaphroditus was willing to lay down his life. I mean, that just jumps out at you. He risked his life. That jumps out. But here's the other thing that jumps out to me. Epaphroditus had great relationships. This almost reads like a love letter. Paul's talking about him and he says, My brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. What does it take to be a brother? What does it take to be a good fellow worker? What does it take to be a good fellow soldier? It takes laying stuff down. Families work when people lay stuff down. Businesses work when people lay stuff down. Militaries work when people lay stuff down. And churches work when people lay stuff down. In his autobiography, Up From Slavery, Booker T. Washington uh, shares a beautiful picture of what it means to be a brother. This is him telling a story about his brother. He writes, The most trying ordeal that I was forced to endure as a slave boy, however, was the wearing of a flax shirt. I can scarcely imagine any torture, except perhaps the pulling of a tooth, that is equal to that caused by putting on the new flax shirt for the first time. My brother John, who is several years older than I am, performed one of the most generous acts that I've ever heard of one slave relative doing for another on several occasions when I was being forced to wear a new flax shirt. He generously agreed to put it on in my stead and wear it for several days till it was broken. Can you see Jesus? In Booker T. Washington's brother. Can you see how beautiful relationships happen when we lay down our lives? Christian community is not some sort of magic trick. It is this mutual willingness to die to our interests, to die to our busyness, to die to our bitterness, to die with Jesus so that we can experience the life of Jesus together. That is how Christian community is formed. I want to leave you this morning with a few big picture thoughts. 
um, summarized in three words. Strategy, union, and honor. So stepping back for a second, let's just look at the big picture. Strategy, union, honor. So here's one big picture thought. Uh, One thing I notice as I step back and just look at this passage as a whole is that Paul is a master strategist. Um, you know, he's, he's clearly sending and receiving and, I mean, he's in prison and he's still kind of running the show. This is, this is really cool. Um, Paul is, he cares deeply about the who, what, when, where, and why of ministry. And here's why, here's, here's, here's my point. Here's why I say this. The plea this morning, you may be wondering, okay, like what is the big plea? The plea this morning is not for us to commit to random acts of kindness, That is not what this passage is about. This passage is a plea for strategic gospel impact. The Christmas story, Jesus coming from heaven to earth, was not a random act of kindness. It was a well-orchestrated strategic plan. And so if we're going to pour ourselves out, if we're going to build one another's up, if we're actually going to lay down our lives from one another, it's not going to happen by accident. And so this is what we've done. We have created what is called a discipleship pathway. A discipleship pathway. This is an intentional plan for us to be formed into the image of Christ together. And here's the key word, on purpose. To be formed into the image of Christ together on purpose. And uh, if you do come back today after the second service for our business, our annual church business meeting, we'll be giving you a copy of the Discipleship Pathway and sharing a little bit of details about it. If you're not able to come back today, uh, we will have copies here next week. Uh, we'll, have, uh, we'll have it on the website. I'll be happy to email it to you um, to get it in your hands. We, we want to take a step away from random acts of kindness and towards strategic gospel impact. And that's why we've created this discipleship pathway. I hope that you get excited about it, and I hope it serves our church well. So strategy. The second word is this, union. Union. Uh, There's been this, seems like in my life, there's been this swing of a pendulum back and forth. Uh, It seems like every, I don't know, seven to ten years in in the American Christian church. And this is how how it goes. Uh, It seems like the church gets too moralistic, seems like people are just too interested in the rules and regulations of Christianity. And so what we try to do is, is we try to talk more and more about what Jesus has done for us. But then the more and more we start talking about what Jesus has done for us, it seems like the church starts to get consumeristic. We kind of sit back and we think, oh, like that's somebody else's job. And so then what we try to do is we try to swing back the other direction. And we start talking about what you should do for Jesus, what you should be doing up to for Jesus. And it seems like the pendulum just sort of swings back and forth and back and forth. But what Paul is teaching us in this passage today is that there is a better way. And the better way is to embrace what he calls union with Christ. Three times in this passage, uh, in verse 19, he says, in the Lord. In verse 24, he says, in the Lord. And then in verse 29, he says, in the Lord. And I don't know, like, as you're reading it... uh, you almost feel like it's just totally like inserted and it seems to have no value whatsoever. Like he's just randomly throwing these in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. What is he doing? He is showing us that what it means to be a Christian is to be united to Jesus. And this is what you get when you're united to Jesus. You get both a gospel that saves you from your sins because you are hidden in Christ His perfect obedience becomes your perfect obedience. His death for sins is now your death for sins. His resurrection is your resurrection. And so when you're united to Christ, you get forgiveness. But what you also get with union with Christ is you get the joy and the pleasure of imitating Christ. The same gospel that saves you becomes the gospel that shapes you. And as you're united to Jesus, as you're married to Jesus, as you become one with Jesus, your new pleasure is to reflect him, is to reenact his life and death and resurrection in your own little deaths and resurrections. So union with Christ in the Lord. That's not a throwaway phrase. That is what's happening in this whole passage. He's showing us the beauty of life united to Jesus. And then our third word, honor. 
In verse 29, talking about Epaphroditus, Paul says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. I would think that we need more honor in this world. I would think that we need more encouragement in this world. I would think that we need more rejoicing in the people that we admire and the people that we look up to. And so this is what I want to commit to do today, and I want to invite you to commit to do today. I want everybody here, uh, before we go to bed tonight, I want you to send a text or an email uh, to the people in your life who you see reflections of Jesus in. Send them a message and, and just tell them, like, what do you see in their life? How do you see them reflecting Jesus? Why do you admire them? And then somewhere in the message, just encourage them to keep going, to keep pressing, to keep dying, to keep pouring out, to keep serving with Jesus. Let's get good at honoring one another for the ways that we are breaking the old sinful pattern of this world and we are embracing the new, wonderful, life-giving pattern of Jesus. It's almost like what Paul is telling them to do in honoring this man. It's almost like he's giving us the power to give a little token of what will be experienced at the resurrection when God honors his people who poured out and served and died with Jesus. We are invited in to just be a little foretaste for somebody else of that future day when they receive the honor from God the Father. And so this, I want to do that tonight. I would really love it if you would join me and let's just spread some honor for people who are reflecting Jesus uh, that we know. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, to be united to your son Jesus, to be in the Lord. I pray that that would become everything to us. That being found in him, being conformed to him, that that would capture the vision of our hearts. We are so thankful for this opportunity. And we pray that you strengthen us by your grace to pursue it together. It's in Jesus' name that we continue to worship now. Amen.